Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 10, Woman with a Plan, the story of Helen Parkhurst and Dalton. As I'm recording this episode, it's September 1st, 2021. And across the nation, summer vacation has ended and children are returning to school, some for the first time in person since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. How that pandemic played out across the USA's highly variegated patchwork of 13,000-some-odd largely independent public school districts has looked very different. In some schools, disruptions and transformations were minimal, while others experienced extended periods of remote and hybrid learning that forced teachers, school leaders, and families to totally rethink hitherto unchallenged, or maybe just hitherto unsuccessfully challenged, structures of how school functions. Now we're entering a new school year, where we'll see how many of those challenges and transformations stay around, or continue iterating, and how much school reverts back to those same institutional models, held back by inertia from changing even as the times in which they occupy and the needs of the students whom they teach have changed. Moments like this make me think of other times when certain schools undertook serious efforts to change up what David Tyak and Larry Cuban call the grammar of schooling to better serve actual students and families, and I decided to focus this week on one remarkable educator called Helen Parkhurst and her creation in 1920 of something called the Dalton Plan. Her story reminds me that all of these ideas I talk about every episode, about how learning can and should be more student-centered, project-based, flexible and adaptable to students' individual needs and interests, aren't new, and that we've seen viable alternatives before. The story of the Dalton Plan begins with the birth of Helen Parkhurst in 1887 in Durand, Wisconsin, where her parents ran a small hotel. Even as the beginnings of the public schooling systems as we know it were taking shape out in Massachusetts and New York, in the late 1800s, rural Wisconsin still fielded one-room schoolhouses like the one where Helen experienced her own primary education. And according to her later biographers, this setting, where children played a role in teaching one another and students of different ages and skill sets pursued different work, would fundamentally establish Parkhurst's own idea of what good education looked like. Parkhurst was only 17 when she graduated from Durand High School and went on to teach in a one-room schoolhouse herself, experimenting with more child-centered instruction and classroom management that involved more negotiation with students and student autonomy and less top-down authoritarianism. Parkhurst apparently held on to these ideas despite going on to attend teacher training courses at the River Falls State Normal School. Remember, normal schools were what teachers' colleges were called back then, at a time when it was apparently under the very conservative leadership of Warren J. Breyer, whose main philosophy of education was about moral indoctrination and obedience to authority. Parkhurst also began doing summer coursework at Columbia University in New York. Honestly, I have to admit that trying to keep track of Parkhurst's movements during this period of her life is quite challenging, as she was remarkably peripatetic, and not all of the sources I read even agreed upon the exact dates for her various movements, but I've done my best to synthesize here. She next goes to Hudson, Wisconsin, to become first a teacher and then a teacher training supervisor, 
And it's here that Alice Schultz, her mentor professor, introduced Parkhurst to the work of psychologist Edgar James Swift and his book, Mind in the Making. Swift doesn't get a lot of airplay in the contemporary canon of educational giants, but his theories and research went along many of the same lines as more celebrated luminaries like Francis Parker and John Dewey, namely that students learn best by doing, not just by reading and listening and taking tests. Classrooms, said Swift, shouldn't be run like indoctrination centers, but instead like laboratories, with students investigating phenomena and making and testing theories. Parkhurst herself credited Swift with finally codifying these ideas that she had had germinating all along, that, and here she quotes Swift's own work, quote, the rational method is to work with the students, inspiring them with a longing to delve into things for themselves, end quote. So Parkhurst next ends up teaching in Washington State in Tacoma, where what happens next seems taken right out of an inspirational teacher movie, albeit one that somehow combines dead poet society with Footloose. Parkhurst, 22-year-old maverick that she was, winds up teaching her students how to dance, even though apparently that was frowned upon at that time and place and led to complaints about her being sent to the superintendent. But in a climax worthy of Hollywood, Parkhurst unveils her student dance team at the dedication festival for the newly built Tacoma Stadium. Parkhurst managed to get these elementary school kids to make costumes and music and choreograph a Spanish dance. And to top it off, they take formation and spell out the word Tacoma in 60-foot letters in a spectacle described by the local papers as, quote, the likes of which have never been seen before, end quote. The Town Goes Wild awards Parkhurst a gold medal, $1,000, which is the equivalent of about 30 k today, and declares her first citizen of Tacoma. I guess not much really happened out there in Tacoma back in 1910, if this was the biggest thing ever. But job offers started pouring in for Parkhurst from across the West Coast, and her somewhat baffled superintendent asked her how he could possibly persuade her to stay. Parkhurst responded, give me free reign to transform a school. Well, the superintendent agreed and gave her free reign to transform, well, five classrooms anyway, at the Edison School, and five teachers to work with as she did so. And together, they created these small, intensive, highly hands-on and student-centered forms of learning that bore little resemblance to lecture halls or skill drills. In many traditional classrooms, Parkhurst explained, Quote, sharp children are held back and dull children are pushed on to the detriment of their mental powers, owing to the teacher's effort to strike the problematical average. How many class lessons have children to listen to which are boring and useless, and others where they are not sufficiently interested to ask a question? If we use class teaching and individual work in their proper places, the best results will follow. Unquote. Well, from all reports, the best results did follow. Students, colleagues, and families found Parkhurst's experimental classrooms to be highly engaging and effective. After a year, though, Parkhurst was on the move again, this time accepting a supervisor teacher training position at the Central State Teachers College in Ellensburg, Washington. And then two years after that, she ends up back in Wisconsin to accept a similar position at the College of Stevens Point, and then a year after that, she decides to take a year's leave of absence and leave the United States entirely to go to Rome, Italy. Fun trivia fact, 
The ship that Parkhurst left on was none other than the RMS Carpathia, the ship which two years earlier had been first on the scene to rescue survivors of the Titanic, and which four years later would meet its end getting sunk by a German U-boat during the First World War. But anyway, this is Parkhurst's story, and her story had been that she was going to Rome to study with renowned professor Giuseppe Sergei. But on the voyage, she met another teacher, Mary Johnstone, who talked up one of Sergei's former students who had become a public intellectual in her own right, none other than Maria Montessori. Parkhurst, Johnstone, and several other young women educators formed an intellectual study group, and when Parkhurst had to admit to them that Sergei's classes just weren't challenging her, she started attending lectures by Montessori. And from all accounts, Montessori blew her mind. I reviewed Montessori's life and philosophies in, in detail in Season 1, Episode 11 of this podcast, but the short version is that Montessori discovered and created through extensive research and practice a method of education where a child's interests and abilities, rather than a standardized curriculum of study, should guide their learning experiences, and that those learning experiences should be more hands-on and real-world-based, and less abstract and theoretical. Montessori's ideas would go on to be globally famous, and by all accounts, Parkhurst became one of Montessori's star pupils. At Montessori's urging, Parkhurst got another leave of absence from her position at Stevens Point to spread the Montessori gospel in San Francisco at a 1915 international exhibition, after which Montessori designated Parkhurst as her official representative in the United States. Parkhurst would go on to promote Montessori's work in New York and give lectures at Columbia, before becoming the head of a newly created Montessori-focused teacher training school in Manhattan. Mind you, at this point, Parkhurst is still only 28. But wait, David, didn't you start this episode talking about something called the Dalton Plan? And so far, we've heard nary a mention of anything Dalton-related. Well, my friends, your patience is about to be rewarded, as Parkhurst's many wanderings, from Wisconsin to Washington to Rome to New York, don't stop here. In keeping with the pattern we've seen so far, in just about a year, she was ready to move on to new things. And as Parkhurst prepared to leave the Montessori teacher training position, she wrote in a letter, quote, I am in this to get everything I can educationally. I do not care for position or notoriety, but I do enjoy good, hard educational nuts to crack, end quote. And that it was time, she felt, to get out from under Montessori's shadow to create a school of Parkhurst's own design that ran according to her own specific educational philosophies, quote, so that I might not only satisfy my own energies, but realize and demonstrate the inner truths that I feel, end quote. Some historians have not been kind in describing Parkhurst's decision here. Some, in fact, go so far as to blame Parkhurst for the Montessori method's subsequent lack of ever getting traction in the United States outside of boutique options for the affluent, that somehow only Parkhurst would have been capable of really selling this to the masses. Leaving aside the impossibilities inherent in exploring counterfactuals, I do think those charges are a little unfair, for reasons which I'll detail later on after we talk about what eventually happened with Dalton. Suffice to say for now, from all I've read, Parkhurst and Montessori parted on decent terms, and Parkhurst had already secured another benefactor in the form of Josephine Porter Crane, widow of Massachusetts governor, later senator, and always paper magnate, W. Murray Crane, who used her influence to help Parkhurst try out her educational philosophies at the Upway Field School in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, 
an institution for disabled children, where Parkhurst wound up having great success helping them learn through individualizing their learning experiences, a forerunner, interestingly enough, of what would become the go-to method for special education half a century later, including today, the Individualized Education Plan, or IEP. Parkhurst being Parkhurst, though, she stayed there just about a year before moving a few miles down the road to the tiny town of Dalton, population just under 4,000 at the time, about 45 minutes from where I grew up in Northampton. This would begin the stage of Parkhurst's career for which she would be most remembered. Dalton High School, with its 150 students, was to be the site where Parkhurst, who had until now been implementing her ideas only on the scale of a handful of classrooms, would finally be able to try them out on the level of an entire school in 1920. Still drawing on Edgar Swift's metaphor of the laboratory, she wrote, quote, Let us think of a school as a social laboratory where pupils are themselves the experimenters, not the victims. Let us think it as a place where community conditions prevail as life prevails. The Dalton Laboratory Plan is not a system or a method. It's not a curriculum. It's an educational reorganization which reconciles the twin activities of teaching and learning. When intelligently applied, it creates conditions which enable the teacher to teach and the learner to learn." Unquote. Those who have studied Maria Montessori's life might find something a little familiar to this whole my plan is not a system or a method bit. That's very Montessori, as Maria had always described her own work not as a particular theoretical dogma or toolkit to master, but simply as a recognition of and adaptation to the natural way in which children learned. So what did Parkhurst's system look like? Back when she was stumping for Montessori in San Francisco, Parkhurst had found the time to visit an experimental model school there, run by progressive educator Frederick Burke, who had pretty much jettisoned whole class instruction entirely, and had his teachers instead work with students either individually or in small groups. Parkhurst's school in Dalton was, if anything, far more progressive than Burke's, she did him one better by getting rid of grouping students by age-based grade entirely, arguing, accurately, that by the time they reached high school, a student's age didn't necessarily tell you anything about their readiness level, capabilities, learning profile, etc. In a forerunner of what we now call competency-based grading, Parker's school focused on working with students to meet the demands of the curriculum, but didn't expect them all to proceed at the same rate or go on to be promoted to the next class at the same time. Instead, they proceeded at their own rate and revised their work again and again at no penalty until they were deemed ready to move on. The Dalton model retained the curriculum that the school had formerly been following, but now no longer separated it out into self-contained classes like math, English, history, etc., or even into 55-minute class periods anymore. All learning was now interdisciplinary and happened on the individual schedule of individual students who moved between various laboratory classrooms as they needed to, working one-on-one -on -one with teachers or small groups there. As Parkhurst would later write, she felt that traditional public education was stuck in, quote, a rut that makes puppets of us. The children in our schools read because it is the reading time and because everyone else is reading. In the plan I propose, he would read because he wanted to read at that particular time, and get all the value of what might be called reading habit. I am sure students would work harder and that there would be more interest and enthusiasm if the children themselves reasoned and decided the order of things, and by so doing put themselves in a situation where they could judge their progress and compare it with progress made by their companions. 
The part that particularly appeals to me is the fact that they, and not the teachers, are putting them into situations which they must prove masters of from reason of choice." End quote. Parkhurst's model aims to ensure learning was actually happening through a series of personal contracts that each and every student negotiated with their teacher on a monthly basis, whereby standards were laid out for minimum tasks to complete and advanced or more sophisticated work for students who are ready to go beyond those. The more tasks the students completed, and the more advanced those tasks, the higher the grade they would earn. Again, this is what we now call the competency-based model, and one that's highly differentiated at that. Parkhurst employed an elaborate system of charts for each Dalton student that were constantly updated to reflect their progress. Dalton teachers monitored this progress constantly in a process we now call formative assessment and intervened to coach students where necessary. Local reaction in the Dalton community was at first skeptical and resistant. This kind of way to operate a school was as far outside the realm of normal operations in 1920 as it is now. But Parkhurst eventually won converts, including an influential local pastor who was taken with how much more positive and engaged the local teenagers seemed to have now become. But the Dalton plan's fame quickly spread well beyond the borders of that town, as a group of educators from London, led by a Montessori disciple named Elizabeth Rennie, visited the school in its very first year. Elizabeth, or Belle as she was better known, was the stepdaughter of a wealthy British doctor who had visited the Montessori Institute in Italy a decade earlier and became a convert. Leveraging her wealth and influence, she established a Montessori training college in England at Dulwich. Belle's background was in nursery education. Dalton was her first opportunity to see a Montessori-like model operating for high schoolers. Upon her return to the UK, her account of the visit was published in two separate articles in the London Times, and she established her own version of a Dalton Plan High School. Within a year, there were apparently over 2,000 British educators making visits. Meanwhile, back in the States, Parkhurst was hitting the PR circuit hard. From 1923 to 1924, she gave lectures at the universities of Wisconsin, Michigan, Virginia, and Colorado, and also at John Hopkins and Harvard, and at the New York City Education Association in Albany, and, oh yes, in Japan, too, and a year later in China, and I could go on and on in the years that followed, D.C., Texas, back to Japan, and her brute force publicity blitz made the Dalton plan go the closest thing to viral as an idea could get in the pre-internet world, garnering coverage in the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, and other major national media. Parker's subsequent book about the Dalton plan was published in 58 languages, with an introduction by no less a figure than Aldous Huxley. She was eventually decorated by the Queen of Italy, the Empress of Japan, and the Queen of the Netherlands, not to mention publicly lauded by First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. By 1930, just 10 years after the Dalton School's launch in a tiny Massachusetts hamlet, 162 secondary schools in the United States had reorganized to adopt Parkhurst's model, with another 486 reporting they'd incorporated some modified version or other of the Dalton plan. If you're curious, that constitutes about 6% of all high schools in the nation at the time. Yet today, a look at most public secondary schools in the United States hardly reflects the Dalton model. In fact, the original Dalton school itself by the mid-1930s had all but reverted to its original traditional structure. And by 1949, pretty much the only U.S. school that reported still using the Dalton model was a private school that Parkhurst herself had subsequently founded in New York City. So what happened? Well, there are a lot of theories. 
In the analysis of University of Connecticut professor Diana Lager, author of the Parkhurst biography on which I have been leaning a great deal for this episode, Parkhurst herself, while clearly a brilliant and indefatigable visionary, was also just that, a visionary, and not really a rigorous scientist. Parkhurst never engaged in or commissioned the kind of rigorous social science research and data collection that would produce the kind of results that the educational establishment of the day would have found persuasive. She relied instead on inspirational anecdotes of engaged students and transformational learning. It makes it difficult for me to really weigh in in terms of judging the success of the Dalton model beyond these kinds of individual stories, which are extremely promising, but don't necessarily reveal to me how successful the Dalton plan was with, say, various different subgroups of students, or even by what standards that kind of success was measured. Graduation rate? College acceptance? Statements of personal fulfillment? To be fair, this is still a failing of progressive education today, and contributes to the hesitation of policymakers now as then when considering such models. Lager's biography also argues that the Dalton plan wasn't helped by the fact that Parkhurst remained a perpetual outsider, never becoming a superintendent or the chair of a major teacher's college. She made a big splash in the educational world in Lager's analysis, but never really changed the direction of the river. Another possible reason is that Parkhurst never really codified the Dalton model in a series of easily portable steps and resources that other schools could use, in the same way that organizations like EL Education or the Buck Institute do today. As a result, replication of the Dalton model varied widely wherever it was tried, and without a handbook, so to speak, it was pretty easy for those Dalton-style initiatives to flounder when the going got rough. Some teachers objected to the amount of paperwork and record-keeping necessary to constantly stay abreast of individual students' progress. Others complained that the model relied on a lot of self-motivation on students' part, and kids who didn't take the initiative or buy-in could easily slip through the cracks or just succumb to laziness. Tayak and Cuban, in their classic book Tinkering Towards Utopia, place the blame for the Dalton plan's downfall simply on the grammar of schooling, as they call it, exerting too much gravity. Parkhurst's model was too revolutionary, attempted to change too much at once, and had to compete with too many other similar models at the time, two of the most famous coming out of Winnetka, Illinois, and Denver, Colorado, that teachers then, like now, grumbled about initiative fatigue, how every new year seemed to bring some new flash-in-the-pan reform that would be replaced the year later, and really it was best to just play lip service, ignore the hype, and keep on keeping on with the teaching techniques that were, if not tried and true, at least tried, more familiar and therefore more comfortable, at least to the teachers themselves. I do think there is something to this power of inertia theory, but I don't believe in this sort of inertia as an originless force. The 1930s and 1940s saw a battle between progressives and reactionaries in all facets of American life, and it was easy for conservative elements, then as now, to castigate progressive education as loosey-goosey is best and some facet of a proto-communist plot at worst. There was a lot of active public invective levied against the kind of schooling Parkhurst promoted, and influential business leaders continued to throw their considerable weight and finances behind more conformist, factory-style practices in schools. This was also the time that we see the rise in popularity of standardized testing, See the final two episodes of season one of this podcast for more on that part of the story. 
and models like Parkhurst's that resisted standardization did not last long. Had this act of opposition not been present, I do wonder if Dalton-style schools might not have had at least more of a fighting chance. Parkhurst herself continued to advocate for her form of progressive child-centered education through 1942, when she retired from running that private Dalton school in New York City, and then she went on to earn a graduate degree in education from Yale, where she became that university's very first fellow in education. She continued writing and lecturing right up until her death at age 86 in 1973 in, yes, one more new place, New Milford, Connecticut. You could read the career of this woman, whose intellect Maria Montessori herself had once called, quote, truly rare and precious, unquote, as a failure, but I'm not sure it's so simple. The fact that so much of the story of Helen Parkhurst's efforts feels like it could have played out in the 2010s as easily as the 1920s and 30s speaks not just to the fact that the grammar of schooling is tenacious, but also to the tenacity of attempts to disrupt it. Read any text on educational theory, Visit any teacher training classroom, and you'll see ideas like Parkhurst's championed. And talk to any principal or superintendent, and you'll hear them get lip service. We all know that children learn better and more thoroughly when given more autonomy and personalized instruction. It's just that we then scratch our heads at how to make that happen in a system designed for mass production and evaluated with tools that are poor matches for capturing higher-order learning. It's like we know we want to play soccer, but we're stuck trying to map it onto a baseball diamond. I don't know if the COVID pandemic has been sufficiently disruptive to make us finally willing to bulldoze that playing field, especially since a year of remote learning had already bulldozed much of it for us. We've got a rare opportunity to try and rebuild something better. As a psychologist who visited the original Dalton School in 1929 wrote, the school, in his mind, was, quote, the one hope of the future a chance to be building brains instead of stultifying them." Unquote. Helen Parkhurst may have been less social scientist and more akin to today's social media influencers, but she dedicated her life to promoting that hope. It's September 1st, 2021. Every new school year brings renewed hope for the future, including the hope that we can help school grow ever closer to unlocking and enabling the genius of this new generation of students. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www ed-infinitum.com and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.